This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 210, Trains. I'm Hal Hammond, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, rating, and subscribing. This week we will discuss how standing in front of an oncoming train is an absolutely idiotic thing to do, but also it could actually be necessary. We'll talk about the most famous train in the world and one of the most famous murders. A song about a train that goes a lot further than you may have realized. And a game that brings out the best in some and the quit in others. All aboard, we're leaving the station. We'll start with what I've been preaching. The law in Texas, and your state too, I'll wager, requires drivers to yield the right of way under certain specific circumstances. Emergency vehicles, for instance. That makes sense. Pedestrians. Okay, I would like to think that a pedestrian would be smart enough to avoid forcing me to make that choice, but sure, yield to pedestrians. But the thing that really grabbed my attention was the requirement to yield to trains. Maybe not all the crazy people are on foot if you have to make a rule like that. Yield to trains? To call that a good idea would be putting it mildly. At the risk of insulting you, my faithful listener, allow me to discuss the concept of momentum for a bit. The laws of physics demand that a force in motion stay in motion until another force is applied against it, like friction from your brakes or gravity from planet Earth. The time it takes to stop depends on the weight and speed of the object in motion. Trains are really, really heavy, and they move really fast. It takes a long time for them to stop. They have a lot of momentum, several tons of momentum, in fact. Now imagine for a moment a young man who wants the train to stop. Maybe a duck mommy and her ducklings are trying to get across. And he stops his car on the tracks, gets out, sticks out his hand, and requires the train to yield. How is that going to go? Well, you know how it's going to go. The young man is breaking the rules deliberately. The ducks are breaking the rules too, perhaps not as deliberately as their protector, but breaking them nevertheless. Playing chicken with a train will not end well. Just saying that reminds me of Psalm 2 and the crazy people who thought they would interfere with the plan of the Father to put his Messiah on the throne of the kingdom. It's literally laughable. I mean, who do you think you are? But what if I were to tell you that someone did exactly that, gave God the palm of his hand, said in essence, no God, you have to yield to me. And that not only did he survive the experience, he was celebrated for it. And what if I told you God wanted you to do the same thing? In Exodus 32, Moses had been communing with God for weeks atop Mount Sinai, listening to his plans for the nation of Israel. Meanwhile, the nation was rebelling against God at the foot of the mountain and having a fine time doing it. God told Moses what had been going on and told him to get out of the way, that he was going to destroy the nation and start all over again with the nation he would create out of Moses' seed. And Moses said no. I hasten to add he didn't reject God's command out of rebellion or displaced loyalty. He knew that God's continued forbearance with his people would only glorify God that much more. It sounds to me like a bit of a test for Moses, in fact, a test of his own patience with a nation that pushed Moses time and time again. And Moses passed the test. He passed it at least twice, in fact. In Numbers 14, the scene repeated itself when the nation refused to take the land God was trying to give them at Kadesh Barnea. You could make the case that Moses would have furthered his own agenda by encouraging God to punish the wicked just as he had promised to do. But Moses was more concerned with the plight of his brethren 
than his own personal short-term satisfaction. Many Christians, motivated in their own mind at least by righteous indignation, pray for the downfall of the wicked. It's only right that a nation be punished for rebelling against God and persecuting his people. But their motivation may not be quite as noble or godly as they let on. Maybe their thinking is more like, wouldn't it be a great place for me to live if all the bad guys got what was coming to them? Here's an alternative prayer. Pray that God have mercy on people who are on the train tracks and about to be run over. God told the prophet Ezekiel about how bad things were in Judah. In chapter 22 especially, he speaks of horrific activity from the people in general and from their priests and prophets in particular. But then in verse 30, he says something remarkable. I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. Where is Moses, he's asking. Does anyone care enough about these people to stand up against me and speak on their behalf? God is not willing that any should perish, according to 2 Peter 3, 9. He is looking for a reason to be merciful. You can be that reason. You can stand in the gap and pray for your sinful neighbors, not that God should overlook their sins, but rather that God should give a rebellious nation yet one more chance. After all, he requires you to love your neighbor as yourself. And once upon a time, you were the rebel on the train tracks, and Jesus stepped in to intercede on your behalf. Surely the least you can do is do the same for someone else who is equally undeserving. This is what I've been reading. I have read Murder on the Orient Express multiple times. I've also seen three film adaptations. I'm not sure it's Agatha Christie's best book, but it's almost certainly her most famous. Spoiler alert. The ending will be revealed in a few moments. The entire world has known the ending of this book for decades, so I'm not too worried. But spoiler alert all the same. The Orient Express was a train route that connected much of Europe, going from Istanbul, Turkey in the east to Calais, France in the west. It began operations in 1883 and ceased in 1977. The idea was to allow passengers to travel smoothly, easily, and in style. Turns out most people preferred to do it a little bit less stylishly for less money and a fraction of the time by choosing an airplane route instead. The book is about a particularly grisly kidnapping and murder, how it affected the household of the ones who died, and how their revenge was carried out right under the nose of the greatest detective in the world. The plot works because of the nature of train travel. The passengers are isolated from the world, even more so when the train is stopped by a snowdrift. For the time being, the rest of the world essentially ceases to exist. The only things that matter are those things shut up with you in a small metal box. But train travelers come with baggage, and I don't mean the kind that gets stored in an overhead compartment. The travelers in the Calais coach, other than Hercule Poirot, came bearing the weight of their past association with little Daisy Armstrong and her household. In the end, it was that baggage that defined them, not the circumstances of the moment. I like to think of the time I spend in public worship as a bit of a getaway. It's wonderful to shed the troubles and obstacles of everyday life and hole up with like-minded people who are themselves trying to have their own getaway, and just enjoy the serenity of the moment. But it doesn't really work that way. The demons that haunt us Monday through Saturday may be driven into hiding on Sunday, but they're still with us. We may be nicer, cleaner versions of ourselves on Sunday morning, but we've not really changed. 
The baggage must be dealt with in some way. Perhaps those like-minded people can help. But they won't help if we keep our troubles bottled up inside. They can only help if we do as James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The only way the demons can be properly exercised is through the power of Jesus. And our brethren can be an instrumental part of that process. It helps greatly that we all have our own demons. They may seem different on the surface. They may drive me to one behavior and you to another. But it's all sin in the end. It's like the people on the train car in the book. One may grieve the loss of a granddaughter, another the loss of a mentor, yet another the loss of a fiancé. But in the end, what unites them is far more significant than the details that differentiate them. As a Christian, you are blessed to be traveling with Jesus toward the destination He has provided for us. But being baptized, boarding the train, if you will, does not free you from the troubles that drove you to Jesus in the first place. That's why the blessing you find in Jesus helps you find grace upon grace. In Jesus, the profane, the adulterous, the selfish, the prideful, and every other sinner you can think of, they all take their seat in the same place. They all acknowledge the same Lord and the same enemy, and they find strength to forgive themselves and to overcome. Whichever passenger you happen to be, the promise is for you. And the duty to help other passengers with their baggage, that's for you as well. This is what I've been hearing. The City of New Orleans is a song written by Steve Goodman in 1971. Goodman met Arlo Guthrie, son of legendary folk artist Woody Guthrie, in a Chicago bar and asked if he could listen to the song. Guthrie said Goodman could buy him a beer and he'd listen as long as it took to drink it. Turns out Guthrie loved the song and made a recording of his own in 1972. It became Guthrie's only top 40 hit. On the surface, the song is about riding a train on the Illinois Central Line from Chicago to New Orleans. A rider encounters porters, sacks of mail, card players playing for a penny a point with no one keeping score, and a variety of other people and items, all headed toward a predetermined and unavoidable destination. Goodman wrote it on the way to visit his wife's grandmother, who was dying of cancer. Afterward, he heard the train itself was dying after a fashion. And if it really had 15 cars and 15 restless riders when Goodman was on board, it's no wonder. The train had seemingly outlived its usefulness. Or to use the last line of the last verse of the song itself, this train got the disappearing rail yard blues. The song's connection to cancer deepened when Goodman himself died of acute lymphoblastic leukemia in 1984. That same year, perhaps to honor Goodman and his struggle, Willie Nelson recorded what is likely the most enduring version of the song the version that won a posthumous Grammy for Goodman. I find the tone of the song remarkable. It's not really a sad song. In fact, it brings a smile to my face every time I hear it. There's no whining, no complaining, no regrets. Just a record of events, acquaintances, and experiences one person finds while traveling from one place to another. That's life, really. The destination may be cancer or heart disease or accident or any number of other factors, but it all amounts to the same thing. We get on board, we travel for a while, and then we get to where we're going, where we were always going to get. If you or someone you know is going through cancer or some other crisis of health, 
I hope this does not come across as dismissive toward your circumstance. You have my support and my prayers. And if someone wants to take every measure possible to delay the inevitable, I completely support that. But I emphasize the word inevitable here. The occasional person may actually beat cancer. But what that usually means is that the immediate threat goes away. More often than not, the cancer will return, and in greater force. And even if cancer is rebuffed permanently, some other affliction will do the job just as completely in due course of time. Every shot, every vitamin, every sit-up, they're nothing but stall tactics. The train will pull into the station in time. I've listened to the city of New Orleans a dozen or more times since I was shown this perspective on the song. And here's my takeaway. The journey is far more important than the exact time and circumstances of the arrival. Along the way, we meet people. We encounter challenges. We experience small victories and defeats. We look out the window and see people and places we will never truly get to know. We share stories with friends and strangers who are on the train with us. We put all the sights, sounds, tastes, smells, and feelings in storage and we use them to settle on a state of mind that will define us. I'm a strong person. I'm a fearful person. I'm a joyful person. I'm an angry person. I love everyone. I hate everyone. It's what people pulling into the station often call perspective. I think of the train, metaphorical in nature, that carried Paul against his will from Jerusalem to Caesarea and eventually to Rome. For more than four years, he lived in one prison cell or another, in varying degrees of confinement and discomfort, waiting for someone else to decide his fate. During that time, he wrote a letter to the Philippians that oozes hope and positivity. He wrote a letter to the Colossians that praises the adequacy of the one who truly rules in kingdoms of men. He wrote a letter to the Ephesians that triumphantly proclaims the gospel message that will defeat the cause of evil, no matter how unlikely it may seem in the moment. He did not quake in fear of the future. He lived in the moment, and that life was defined by his faith. As he wrote in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I hope that's the song you're singing today. This is what I've been playing. Railroad Revolution is a game in which players vie to become the most successful businessmen in the emerging markets of the American West during the 19th century. Rail lines and telegraph lines extend to attach hub-to-hub and station-to-station, eventually leading to a connected and unified nation run by rich and corrupt robber barons intent on exploiting the masses and destroying their competitors. That's not exactly the way the game is described on the box cover, but you get the idea. Railroad revolution is broken. That's what we were told numerous times by numerous so-called board gaming experts. If you're unacquainted with the term, let me explain. The games Tracy and I tend to prefer give victory to the player who gains the most victory points during the course of the game. Most players prefer to have point-gathering options along the way. For instance, you might have opportunities to acquire points early, or set yourself up for getting even more points down the line. You choose your path. This game dynamic works because the players assume one strategy is not inherently better than another. You may find yourself on a road not necessarily of your specific choosing because of a roll of a die, another player's choices, a random draw, whatever. If you think that road is not going to lead to victory, 
you spend more than half the game convinced you're going to lose. That's no fun. Well, railroad revolution allegedly favors one path over another. If you play a particular strategy properly, we were told, you can't lose. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't believe everything I hear. And Railroad Revolution looked like a great experience, so we bought the game anyway. And we enjoyed it. The shine wore off after a while, and we traded it for something we thought we'd like better. But it wasn't because the game was broken. That had not been our experience at all. And I'm pretty sure I know why. It goes back to a phrase I used a minute ago. If you play a particular strategy properly. And there's the rub. We are not experts. We are amateurs. And amateurish amateurs at that. Or at least certainly I am. I am reasonable and honest in my assessment of my own efforts. And I know I could have safely said at the end of every loss in Railroad Revolution, I could have played that better. If there is a significant problem with my own efforts, I'm not going to blame the game. Not everyone thinks that way, though. I know plenty of people who think their gameplay is just fine, but the deck is stacked against them. They can't get ahead in business because they have a mean boss. They can't lose weight because gym memberships are too expensive. Worse yet, they can't properly serve Jesus because whatever. It's like they're on a train heading toward disaster. They have no say in getting on the train. They have no opportunity to get off. All they can do is whine, and that's exactly what they will do. Personally, I think that's pathetic. Your choices may not guarantee success, but that's a far cry from saying they don't matter. If you can play the game better, Why wouldn't you? Is losing with excuses as good as winning? Personally, I want to win. I eagerly look for reasons to blame myself for failure. If it's my fault, I can course correct and maybe do better the next time. Living in hope is surely worlds better than living in despair. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9.24, Run in such a way that you may win. Give your best effort, whether it's in business, in your family, or in your walk with Jesus. Blaming your circumstances is basically the same thing as blaming God. If God had set me up better, I would have done better. Jesus disagrees. He said, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. Luke 16.10 You may be a one-talent Christian in a room full of five-talent Christians. I doubt it, but what if you are? What if you will never achieve to the degree that someone else does? So what? You're going to bury what you have in the sand? What does that do for God? What does that even do for you? Here's a better plan. Do more with one talent than anyone ever has. Be like Dorcas or Onesimus or the widow with two mites. Do the best you can with what you have and let God worry about the victory. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also check out the Hal Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, signing off.